Hi, I'm Tony from Los Angeles. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of This week on The Sound of Young America, my guest is the brilliant comic actor Chris Parnell. The past two years, Chris has been a recurring guest star on the NBC sitcom 30 Rock as Dr. Leo Spaceman, or Spachemin. In this scene, he's trying to revive the comatose chairman of GE with a well-placed shot, then with a well-placed telephone call. What's wrong with him, Leo? Well, to the untrained eye, he'd appear to be what we in the medical community call sleeping. But he is, in fact, in a diabetic coma, which could have been avoided by what we call eating. Do whatever you can, Leo. He has to wake up. Okay. This is the gross part. Almost done, almost done. That shot was just a placebo. I was hoping this was psychological. He may not be faking it for attention. He just has to say one sentence. Couldn't you just, you know, inject something right into his heart? I'd love to. But we have no way of knowing where the heart is. See, every human is different. Is it 411 and 911? Uh, New York? Uh, diabetes repair, I guess. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program, Chris Parnell, is uh, one of the five or six, uh, was one of the five or six longest tenured cast members of Saturday Night Live, despite a couple of brief interruptions, <laughs> despite a brief interruption there some, at some point in the middle. More recently, he appeared last season on television in the ABC sitcom Misguided, and he's also been a regular guest star uh, as the amazing and delightful Dr. Spaceman or Spachemin, uh, depending on your pronunciation preferences, on NBC's 30 Rock. Uh, he's also a featured player in the new feature film, Kablooey. Um, Chris, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for pronouncing Dr. Spachemin right. Well, there's two ways to pronounce Dr. Spachemin. It depends on who you are. Right, right. But most people, a lot of people don't get the Spachemin pronunciation correct. So. Well, it looks... I mean, traditionally, the, that word, when not a name, is pronounced spaceman. It is indeed. I mean, if you said to Neil Armstrong what a great spachemin he was, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? He would be upset. He, he would, so you can see how people would default to the one that doesn't upset Neil Armstrong. <laughs> he would probably punch you if you said that. Exactly. He would mess you up. Yeah. Those guys were serious. They're oh, test yeah. pilots. They started out as test pilots. They're powerful. They got those buzzsaw haircuts. Is that what that's called? A buzzsaw haircut? A uh, buzz cut? <laughs> yeah. Maybe. I couldn't tell you what that's yeah. called. Chris, I couldn't tell you what that's called. Um, I want to ask you about rapping for a minute. One of the big things that you had a lot of success doing on uh, Saturday Night Live, and one of the most distinctive uh, things you brought to the table on Saturday Night Live was your skills as an MC. Um, I, I want to ask you about how you, basically how you came to do that. Well, 
it all started with a, 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 a stupid email exchange with a friend of mine back home. And it was actually about Liv Tyler, um, who I just saw last night in The Hulk. Still a very lovely woman. Um, amazing. I hadn't seen her in a while. She's fantastic. And just for for our listeners, The Hulk is a very exclusive Hollywood club. <laughs> it's a exactly. Club here yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wrote, we wrote this email about Liv Tyler. Like she's so fine. She blows my mind, and this and that, this back and forth thing, and and it became. And I just and I just went with it. And I just made this whole rap about it, and uh, and then I rem- you know I kept it. In, you know, in my vest pocket, and then we, when Britney Spears hosted, I was like, "Wait a minute, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can change this around a little bit and make it fit her." And uh, and lo and behold, you know, it hit. It, it was a big hit at the read-through table, and uh, and and you know, and then people people responded to it. The it girl of the moment, the person everybody's talking about, is our host tonight, Miss Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> Deserving. People want to know who is she dating? Is there a special man in her life? Well, <laughs> oh, Kirsten, don't hate me for this, <laughs> but I just have to say it. Um, <clears throat> Kirsten Dunst and I, Chris Parnell, have been dating for the last three years. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. It might sound corny, but to celebrate our love, I wrote a song about our life together. So, Kirsten, this is for you. Yo, 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 listen up. This is a true love song. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Ever since the day I was born, I've been looking for a hole that I could call my own. A beautiful dream. I was just waiting to be shown. And then God Almighty... I think as it went on, like, I, 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 a couple of the writers uh, who were at the show for a while, um, uh, Eric Sloven and Leo Allen, helped me write the one that I did about Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, which I think took it to a whole nother level. It was a whole... There was so much more clever than what I had, my sort of simple line had been on the raps before. And then, of course, with, with Lazy Sunday, that was such a group effort with, with all of us. Lazy Sunday, wake up in the late afternoon. Call Parnell just to see how he's doing. Hello, what up, Parn? Yo, Sam Burke, what's cracking? Thinking what I'm thinking? Money up, man, it's happening. <laughs> what's my hunger pain? I'm sticking like something. Hit up Mac Doga and Mac on some cupcakes. No doubt that Baker got all about Bob Frosty. I love those cupcakes like McAdams loves Gosling. Gosling, Gosling, Gosling. Well, I want to congratulate you on your, on your rapping, which is... As far as I know, it's definitely... I'm going to go ahead and just give it a blanket statement. It's my favorite comic white guy rap. Wow. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. Absolutely sincere. Thank you. Uh, You went to acting school. You also had more traditional comedy training at the Groundlings, but you started your acting career in a proper acting school in an arts conservatory environment. That is correct. Um, When you were studying acting uh, uh, just out of high school, did you have the idea that you were going to be a dramatic actor or or was the idea of becoming a sketch comedy actor or an improviser or something like that, something that you had in the back of your mind the whole time? No, I don't don't think... I mean, I just... just, uh, On a real simple level, I, I knew I liked to act and I had done some drama stuff, some dramatic stuff and some comedic stuff in high school and and I enjoyed it all. Um my first big play that I did, this play The Diviners, that was a dramatic role and and so that's kind of where I felt like, oh, I actually maybe I can do this, you know. And then we did this play Greater Tuna, which was me and my friend Dan playing like twelve different roles each or something, ten different roles and, you know, definitely a comedy. So when I went to college I sort of, you know, had an open mind. I just knew I wanted to 
pursue a career as an actor. And I wasn't thinking necessarily about Saturday Night Live or sketch comedy or anything like that. You did regional theater before you moved to Los Angeles. What led you to make that big jump into L.A.? Well, I, I didn't do, I, I basically went and did the Alley Theater in Houston after college. I did their apprentice program where you, you like earn equity points and then you understudy roles in the main stage plays. And then we did a, a couple of productions of our own, which we toured around to like high schools and elementary schools. And I, I, I guess I was a little full of myself, but I had this idea that the, the artistic director of the theater was going to see me. Uh, you know, in one of these performances, and he's going to see you building sets. <laughs> well, he was going to say, oh, "We did, we did Romeo and Juliet, a, like a, an abbreviated version." And I and I played Romeo, and I, I thought, oh, you know, I did pretty well in that. So I thought he would see that and say, "Hey, stick around and you know, be a part of our company," even though I don't think they had a true resident company. But uh, it didn't happen that way, and I, you know, sort of nothing came of it. I mean, I had a good time, good people, but I left a little disenchanted and ended up going back to Memphis for a year, uh, to Germantown specifically, outside of Memphis, and, and teaching high school there for a year at my old school. And I wasn't cut out for teaching, and I, uh, I realized, oh, I really, I really do want to act. I need to pursue this. And so it's like, well, I think I either need to go to New York or L.A., and after talking to some friends who lived out here, it was like, oh, it seems like L.A. makes more sense. Why did L.A. make more sense? That was actually exactly what I was wondering. It's a very specific choice for a young actor to go to L.A. or to go to New York. Right. Why did you choose L.A.? Gosh, I wish I could remember more of what my thinking was at the time. I mean, I had friends out here. I had quite a few friends from both high school and college, so that made it welcoming. One of my best friends was from here. And just talking to people about it, it's like, well, this is really where the majority of the film and television work happens and I wasn't necessarily committed to a life in the theater I mean I think it was the right decision you know I mean because I, I like doing film and television stuff I hope you know maybe I can do theater at some point but this is what I really like so dinner theater for example or oh yeah boat theater oh my god! is gosh. that what they call it boat theater I um, think it's called boat theater <laughs> I've never heard it referred to that but it's a great name for I believe it. that's what it's called boat theater Chris I'm in public radio so you understand that I'm an enthusiast of all forms of theater from dinner theater to boat theater to garden theater and you know what you're talking about absolutely so, right. absolutely I'm an expert on, on the local arts scene you are very impressive Jesse thanks Chris I, I really appreciate that it really means a lot coming from you because I know that you too are an enthusiast of the theater the lively arts <laughs> i am indeed um when you started in at the groundlings that's a very comedy focused scene that's a world of people who uh aspire either to uh either to do groundling style comedy on the stage with the groundlings and ultimately to do things like be on saturday night live that's a it's a pipeline what was it like for you to to get into this into this scene of people who weren't on stage because they wanted to be in plays, but were on stage because they wanted to be the guy on Saturday Night Live or the f funny neighbor in a sitcom or whatever that leads to? Right. I, I know the question you're asking, and I, I don't, I'm not sure what the best answer to that is. It, you know. You you have to work your way up through the classes, so it starts out very dispersed, and you know the the, the talent levels are are. There's wild. a lot of people who just want to make better corporate presentations. <laughs> well, that's I'm sure there is some of that. Yeah, I mean, people who want to sort of get out of themselves and you know try this improv thing, and they don't necessarily have this bigger end goal in mind. I mean, I 
I did want to be, I knew that my goal was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to try to make it to, into the Groundlings company. I, I didn't have SNL as a goal, not as I remember anyway, but it was so much fun. It was like, you know, it was like being in college again. It was just, there's so much camaraderie and I made so many friends. And especially by the time I made it into the Sunday company, that was like, you're such a tight knit little group in the trenches and you, you know, you do it every Sunday and it's kind of a different show and you're always writing new sketches and it was it was fantastic. It was a it was a really great time in my life. And so when the SNL thing came along, it was a, it was a complete surprise. They had looked at me once before, uh, around the time Anna Gasteyer got hired, and my like my agent had sent in my little measly tape of whatever like sketches and stuff I'd done. I don't even think I'd done any sitcom things. And you know, and they passed on me, not surprisingly. And then so I thought that was it. I thought that was my shot. So when the call came a few few years later, that they you know, wanted to fly me out. That was, that was quite a shock. What skills did you learn in the Groundlings that you didn't learn in theater school? Well, I learned, uh, I learned a bit more, uh, about writing, you know, because we had to write our own monologues and scenes and things. And, uh, and I real you know, I learned that I could do that somewhat. And, uh, you know, and certainly all the improv stuff. I mean, we had taken improv classes at college, but you know, the Groundlings took it so much further. And so I sort of learned the rules of that and, you know, and how to move the scene forward and the different kinds of improv and all that stuff. And then I think it just was, it was a good place to, you know, sort of hone your comedy skills because there, there's so many funny, good people there and there's so many different ways to be funny. And I think you, you know, you pick things up from other people subconsciously and you, you learn different ways to be funny in a way, you know, part of the distinctive character of the groundlings relative to one of the other, uh, big comedy institutions, a second city or a, something like that is uh, the groundlings is, uh, known as being very character driven. Tell me about how you learned to develop characters for for the comedy stage. Well, you know, it it came, I guess, kind of starting in the, on the third level, what's called lab, and we, uh, you know, we're writing our own monologues and, and scenes and things, and and you know, it just, I don't know, you're you're hungry. Uh, I was, and you know, you want to you want to impress everybody. I mean, you want to you want to come up with these things, and you know, I don't know, it was. Um, we would do exercises in class sometimes where you would, you know, you would do something like an animal, then you'd sort of take that and then make that into a character. And there are all kinds of little exercises and things to build those characters. And, and then, you know, just, just stuff out of the top of your head and just... just Did they really make you do something like an animal? I think that was one of them, maybe. I don't... Uh, yeah, I think Are that. you describing an actual experience you had or just a parody of theater education you saw in a movie or television program? <laughs> I think it's actually an experience I had. <laughs> I think it was. I mean, part of it, part of it is being uninhibited, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm not nearly as uninhibited as I used to be, but I, I think that's one of the things we actually did. Some, there was something animal-based. I can't remember the details. Do you remember a character that you created uh, early on that you were proud of, like a, like a first thing that you were like, hey, this actually is funny and it works as something that maybe is even a little bit different from me? I, yeah, I, I did. I, I had a character, um, I, he didn't really have a name, he was just a, a, a an Atlanta Braves baseball fan who was at a game, it was a monologue, and and I was out there, uh, and I sort of created this world where I was talking to my, my wife, my daughter, my son, and then the, the fans around me who were complaining about what they were doing, sort of with all these different points of focus, which I have to give a lot of credit to, to Melanie Graham, my teacher, for, because she, she was the one who sort of directed me into making it this thing, and and it, it got a it got a really nice response. It was he was you know this, I mean it wasn't a huge stretch, but he was this southern, you know family middle aged guy, 
but yeah, that was that was nice, and that was I got I got some good feedback from that. I was like, oh wow, I guess you know. Did, something. Did, did you find that that your your background? I mean, having grown up in like the Memphis area, and uh, I think Southern Baptist is was your family, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, did you find that that background was was something that was rich for you to draw on because it was different from the other folks who were, who were around you? It was. It was. Yeah, I definitely felt. You know, there were people from all over here, of course, but but uh, yeah, I felt. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, I had another character that was a Southern preacher. You know, and all my characters were not Southern, just for the record. But, <laughs> but, but I, at least in the early stages, I, I did better with those. The Southern convenience store owner, <laughs> right. Southern garbage man. <laughs> I, I came to find that the Southern characters didn't work as well on Saturday Night Live somehow. But uh, What do you think was the difference? I don't know. You know, I think there's something about a live, you know, a little live intimate theater experience. And it's hard. You have to You have to be so specific because, I don't know, if you just do a Southern accent on... Saturday Night Live or something, it's like, you know, around the table, around the table read people, I, I think it immediately turns people off a little bit. It's like, oh, you're doing this. It kind of feels like something somebody might do in their, like, first improv class. Like, <laughs> and I'm going to do it with a southern accent. Exactly. It feels so stock and tired and whatever. So it's hard to make it, you know, specific. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org. We'll have more with Chris Parnell in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. In the early 60s, Mal Sharp and James P. Coyle put on the squarest suits they could find, picked up a briefcase with a hidden tape recorder, and hit the streets of San Francisco with some of the craziest schemes ever imagined by man. Want to know how a drunk sailor reacts when they tell him they'd like him to star in their verite film about a bank robbery, and that they'll be using real guns, and that no one but him will know it's a film, and that afterwards they'll all split the money? You might be surprised. Maximum Fun is proud to present Season 2 of Coil and Sharp, The Imposters, real put-ons from the real streets of real 1960s San Francisco featuring James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp, a pair of real nuts. Search for Coil and Sharp in iTunes or visit MaximumFun.org. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Chris Parnell, is well-known for his long stint on Saturday Night Live. He's also appeared on a number of programs, including Misinformation this past year on ABC and a regular recurring role on NBC's 30 Rock. Tell me about how you got cast on Saturday Night Live. As I understand it, uh, in your career, you were sort of on parallel tracks, like a lot of people, auditioning for Saturday Night Live and auditioning for the other big sketch comedy showcase that pulls from uh, the Groundlings a lot, Mad TV on Fox. Right. Um, tell me about how what those audition processes were like and, and how they were similar or different. Um, with Mad, I, I guess, I think Mad looked at me twice, and on each of the occasions there were at least two auditions and maybe three on the second one, but like you know, multiple callbacks and, and, you know, and doing scenes and stuff. I think originally I did my own stuff and then they had you do some scenes. I can't remember, but obviously I didn't get it. And then with the Saturday night live audition, it was one audition. That was it, you know? And, uh, I, I got a call. I was working as a personal assistant, uh, to a friend who's a screenwriter. And, uh, and I got the call from my agent. They said we they had seen you at the Groundlings, and we sent them your reel, which by then had some sitcom stuff on it, had a little more meat on it. And 
and that they want to fly you out and, and here's what they want. So I got on the phone. I talked to uh, Sherry O'Terry and Anna Gasteyer to sort of get their advice and their feedback. And they were really helpful um, because they had seen some of what I'd done and they were able to tell me, well, this is what it's really like. And don't expect anybody to laugh. And uh, and Mike McDonald, who I think is still on Mad, um, yeah. he, he and I auditioned together and we like, you know, helped each other out and we would do our auditions for each other and deliberately not laugh which was actually really helpful, you know, so that you didn't expect that. That's just terrifying, <laughs> the prospect of having to do your, do your audition so much that you can, like, that you have some kind of built-into-your-body understanding of the fact that it's funny so that you don't just run out of the room screaming or crying when n- nobody laughs when you do something funny. It's true, it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of like doing a, sh- a little one-man show and having it tight and... And I don't know. It's it, like doing a one little one man show that everyone in the audience hates. Exactly. That's more specifically right. But <laughs> but I was you know we did it up on the home base where the where the guests hosts do their monologue. So that was kind of nice because it was it was like you know it was a stage and so you had this sense of separation and and Lauren and the writers and everybody were sort of sitting around in the in the dark. You couldn't really see them and you had one big NBC camera on you. So in that sense, it would made it a lot easier to focus as opposed to being in. Um, you know, some of the spaces like that you find yourself in for sitcom auditions or, or even for Mad. Uh, a lot of times, uh, a new cast member on Saturday Night Live has a couple of kind of arrows in the quiver that they can bust out to get themselves on television. It's, you know, maybe they're the characters that they auditioned with or, or something like that. What, how did you manage to get yourself into the, into the flow of Saturday Night Live? I mean, it took a while. In some ways, I you know, I don't know to what degree I was ever successful with that. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I you know, I think people, as you're there a bit. I mean, most of the writers, everybody's seen your audition, so they have a sense of you. And some of that material we tried to develop, but but none of it. I don't think anything I ever brought into the show from the Groundlings ever finally made it on. Some of it made it to dress, but never to air. And you know, people uh, come to th- say, "Oh, I know what he can do," and and I he's reliable, and he'll do this and that, and. You know, and so people put you in their sketches. If people aren't writing for you, you're you're totally screwed. I mean, I, I want to ask you about being reliable. As I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking of an interview I did a, a couple years ago with a guy who I think is just absolutely one of the funniest people in the world, um, uh, uh, Andy Daly, who was a regular on on Mad TV for a few years. And when I talked with Andy, he, he was talking about when he hit the stage at, on, at Mad TV, he saw what was going on there. And obviously, Mad TV has a slightly more 12 year old boy tone than uh, Saturday Night Live. But uh, he hit the stage there and thought, oh, I know what I can do. I'm going to ground the heck out of all these sketches. I'm going to be, they're never going to have seen an amazing straight, la- straight man like me. I'm going to bring that, I'm going to file every joke to a fine point through my spectacular reaction takes and just make everything two stars better through my wonderful grounding of everything. Right. And he ended up, I asked him what, what was his proudest sketch uh, that he ever did on Saturday, on uh, Mad TV, and he ended up telling me that it was a sketch he wrote that was like a behind the music about the world's greatest straight man 
who basically just had a really terrible, sad life. <laughs> and, I like that. And in in sketch comedy, it's easy. It's much easier to get credit for being big than it is for being the straight man. And I think one of your strengths as a performer is being a spectacularly strong uh, straight man. Or you described it as a utility man, which I think is very reasonable. Thank w- you. Was, was that ever, uh, I don't want to say like a disappointment, but was there ever like a tension in you thinking like, gosh, I got to make myself act crazy so that I can get a little credit. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it was a lot of it was an internal thing. I mean, I knew that I could do these other characters and things that I had done at the Groundlings. It's just finding what translates into SNL and what's the what's the form for that, you know. And um, you know, I did a little bit, you know, but uh, never on the level of a lot of the other folks, you know. And so, yeah, it was it was it was a tough sort of internal battle. Like, you know, gosh, I need to try more stuff. I need to be bolder and braver and put it out there more but uh i don't know i didn't i, I did you did you have perform were there any performances um that uh that weren't big that you were particularly proud of were there any was there any sketches that that uh stand out in your mind where you were like man i i didn't do something crazy that people are going to be talking about on sunday but i'm really proud of the work i did well i guess i mean it's probably because they get brought up sometimes, but the, of course, the, the cowbell sketch um, was pretty straight in that, and then, then and then the centaur sketch with with Christopher Walken <laughs> was pretty straight. Which I mean, that was really more about just that was a great piece of writing, you know, um, that I think Will Ferrell and Adam McKay wrote, and uh, and you know, it was yeah. I mean, so those I felt like you know what I did, I, I did my thing, you know, I did well, and I played it, I played it small. Doctor Winter, hello. You must be Dr. Levitt. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. You've come highly recommended. Well, a couple of those recommendations came from Yale men, so I hope you won't hold that against me. (laughs) Now, as you know, we're becoming a teaching hospital. Sit, please. I wish I could. (laughs) Our new chief resident will help lead that transition. Uh, well, at Johns Hopkins, I actually chaired the faculty committee that oversaw coordination between the school and the hospital. As I said, your qualifications are most impressive. Thank you. Now, would you mind if I ask you a few questions about being a centaur? Please, go ahead. Believe me, I've heard them all. Can I ride you? <laughs> Only if I can ride you. <laughs> Fair enough. Moving on... Could you enter yourself in the Kentucky Derby? I don't know. If you did, would you have to have a little horse riding on you, like instead of a jockey? I I see what you're saying, but again, I really don't know. Because it seems like you already have a jockey with the person part of you. Right. Um, Are we going to discuss my medical qualifications? The rest of the interview will be centaur questions. It feels like there's a particular Adam McKay tone that you were able to inhabit very well, that also Will Ferrell has been able to inhabit really well to the tune of, you know, two quadrillion dollars every <laughs> movie he makes or whatever. Perfect. But uh, there's this particular tone of uh, of kind of a serious interest in something with a little bit of dumbness and... <laughs> 
<laughs> but but a lot of like a lot of commitment and sincerity. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Am I describing something no, that sounds familiar? You're, yeah, you're articulating it very well. Actually, I, I could never have done that. Well, I was going to ask you to articulate it better than I did. <laughs> I, 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 I can. You won. <laughs> <laughs> who knew that this was a fight? It is a contest. It always yeah. Is just... uh, who knew? So <laughs> when you disappeared from Saturday Night Live, I was. I was so disappointed because you were a performer that I just love to watch doing anything. And I'm, you know, that's sincere. Thank you. Tell me what it was like for you to go from regular cast member in your third season, right, right, to this kind of long drawn out summer of who knows who's going to get rehired, which as I understand it at Saturday Night Live is often a little bit drawn out. But I, as I remember it that year became absurdly drawn out and convoluted it did yeah it, it really did um well that you know i in the back of my mind i th- i really thought that we would all get brought back you know and slowly everybody did and did and then and then i heard that, that jerry minor who had only been on the show one season and had i just thought for for somebody being on the show one season had, had established himself amazingly a spectacularly well. Spectacularly funny yeah. guy, Jerry yeah. Jerry Miner. Yeah, but in, in, in a, in a, in a fantastic writer too. And so when I heard that Jerry had had gotten let go, I was like, "Hold, holy moly! Wait a minute! You know, nobody's safe here. If you can fire him, like..." And then sure enough, you know, I got the call from my manager towards the end of the summer, and it was it was rough. It was pretty rough. I'd never been fired before, and I thought I thought things were okay. You know, I, I knew I wasn't the star of the show, but I I thought I was all right. So how then did you go from being fired to not being fired like what 6 months later or something like that? Yeah, well, it was this it was this crazy roller coaster. I almost immediately after getting fired, I heard that well, the door may not be completely shut, you know. So hang in there. So I had given up my lease on my place in New York and I had I was already in LA for the summer. I was like, well, what do I do? So I just put my stuff in storage in New York and I and I rented an apartment in LA um and and lived in LA in this sort of limbo life and cuz I kept hearing, oh, I talked to Lauren, my man, I, you know, one of my managers would be like, talk to Lauren and he's really thinking about it and I'd be like, oh, great and then nothing would happen and finally got to the point where I said, hey, don't I don't want to hear about any of these conversations with Lauren. You know, I'm, I'm tired of this. So if he wants to hire me back, great. You know, I'd go love back to go to back to Canada, jerk. <laughs> but uh, I moved everything out to L.A. and then a couple of months later, I got rehired and and then moved back to New York and lived in a hotel for a few months. What was it like to be back on the show after you got fired? Well, the the nice thing was that there everybody was really welcoming. The the cast and the writers were were very sincerely welcoming me back and and uh, I mean there had been an outcry from some of the cast and and writers and people when I had gotten fired which you know helped to certainly put put some some balm on the wound of that it it took a while to sort of get my legs back in a way and I don't know that I I ever did in the way that I would have if I had had the momentum you know from before and not been fired did did you feel like you had to do something differently when you came back no no I you know I yeah I didn't I didn't feel like I had I didn't, yeah, I know, I felt like I just, you know, I've got to keep doing my thing. I need to try to, I do need to put maybe some energy into trying to develop some more characters or something. So I guess I did do that. You just did some hat work, <laughs> some mask work. You got back to your animal roots. Right, I got, I got some good facial hair work going. What, what would a giraffe do <laughs> if he was auditioning, if he was interviewing for a job? That's a great idea. A gir- two giraffes are in line at the post office and <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yes. 
Well, tell me about how you ended up becoming the uh, only, there's a great distinction in the history of television, the only person to, to leave Saturday Night Live twice. <laughs> well, the second time, I, that whole summer, that, you know, there was this big budget cut. NBC cut a lot of money out and, uh, of our budget. And, and I was on the fence. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do a, a ninth season. Um, but I thought, well, you know, it's, if they want me back, I'll do it. And then it came down that, that, you know, they had let me go and Horatio go. And, and I was, I was bummed because you don't ever want to be let go, but it was, it was nothing like the first time I was like, okay, I can live with that. And it, it, it seems like an odd situation because Saturday Night Live is an institution that is, has this spectacular reputation as a launching pad and has been for many, many people. We just talked about uh, Will Ferrell's $50 million yacht or whatever. <laughs> and um, But on the other hand, it's also the highest point you can get to in the thing that it is, uh, which is to say that it's a, it can be a launching pad for uh, being a star of a movie or something like that, but it can't be a launching pad for bigger things in the world of sketch comedy because it is the world of sketch comedy. It defines the world of sketch comedy in large part. Yeah. So did you have ideas about what you wanted to be other than this thing that you had been having such a great time doing for a long time and this pinnacle of this world that you had climbed to, you know, improbably through grit and determination and talent and all that? You know, it was kind of the same as, as it was in the beginning. I just wanted to continue to work, period. And, you know, I would wanted to continue to work in film and television uh, in as much as I could. It's crazy. It's terrifying. I went to arts high school, and uh, I, I remember just thinking, as much as I loved performing... I couldn't. I couldn't just audition for the rest of my life. Like I only knew a couple of close family friends were, you know, I were were actors, and I, you know, one one guy that was sort of like uncleish to me had almost been James Bond. He oh, had been wow. like in the final three for James Bond. Oh my goodness! And at the time, he was a star on General Hospital. He'd been in the final three for James Bond and didn't get it. And he he's he's acted some since. Right. But like, can you like it just it was it's terrifying to me. Is it scary for you? Yeah, it is. It is, and it's you know, it's it's part of the the trick of you know, sort of keeping your sanity about you is is having your life be built in such a way that it's okay, and hopefully you're financially stable, and you know you can face the uncertainties of the business, and you know, and and, and enjoy life. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're in this sitcom world, small roles in movies. Um, one of the reasons you're here is because you have a, a, a role in the movie Kablooey. Yeah. Um, and the writer-director, uh, Scott Prendergast, was on the show a couple weeks ago and, and talked about you guys working together at the Groundlings. Yeah. Tell me what you would like to accomplish. Like, what is what are the things that you want out of your career now? Is it just to keep your family fed, or is there... Are there things that you'd like, that you really love to do, that you'd like to continue to do or get to do? Well, I guess I guess in my in my ideal world, I would love to be on a a comedy like Misguided that I I enjoyed doing, probably a single camera that you know was around for a few years and provided some sort of stability. That would be awesome. And then at the same time, being able to do film work as as it came. But you know, at the, at, at the end of the day, just trying to do good work, work that you're proud of, and that's you know when when appropriate, funny, um, and and hopefully not getting stuck doing the same kinds of things and getting to, you know, 
try different stuff and, and keep it open and not not being too safe, you know, being willing to take some chances. Maybe not uh, having to tour a condensed version of Romeo and Juliet to elementary schools and libraries. Ho- hopefully not that. Yes. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It was really fun. You can see Chris Parnell in the independent comedy film Kablooey. It's in theaters in select cities now. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. This show was edited by Nick White. Our intern is Chris Bowman. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and you can always email me directly. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. Hey, listen, I'm off to get married, so there'll be two weeks of no new Sound of Young Americas. However, the folks from the fantastic podcast You Look Nice Today will be taking over the Maximum Fun blog in my absence, so be sure to check in to see what they have to say about the world around us. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.